All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to Esther chapter 6. Appreciate your persevering through this book with me. We didn't uh, make a whole lot of comments, comments on Esther chapter 5 last time we met, and just suffice it to say uh, that Esther chapter 5, you can simply write over the heading, You and God Make a Majority. That's really uh, where Esther goes before uh, the king of Persia for the first time, having just resigned herself to the God of heaven, and, uh, and she finds success. And God's providential power continues to work in and through here. And then at the end of that, we sort of have Haman uh, uh, intensifying in his hatred toward Mordecai. So those are kind of the two primary things that are going on uh, in Esther chapter 5. And tonight, uh, instead of every time I say Haman, you saying boo, because that was a little distracting last time. <laughs> uh, you can just put your thumbs down in your lap or something like that you'd like to do that. Uh, so uh, we're in Esther chapter 6. We have a little bit of to cover, 6, 7, and 8 tonight. We're going to try to walk through that. And uh, the first thing by way of introduction I want to share is that uh, the book of Esther is a masterpiece on the providence of God. Uh, the author of the book of Esther, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we never want to forget that, now, this is the Holy Spirit communicating God's providence or the truth of God's providence to us. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the author creates a structure, and we don't have time really to, to um, sort of surface the amazing structure of the book of Esther. Suffice it to say, it's a literary masterpiece, and, 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 it, and, it, and it points up the main truth just in the way it's crafted together kind of sort of takes a theme, another theme, comes to the pinnacle, and then sort of backs away in sort of a, a parallel to the previous theme, and then another parallel to the first theme. It's just amazing how it's structured. And also, he writes in a style, uh, in such a way that imperceptibly makes the point that God's providence is the imperceptible hands and feet of his sovereignty, of God's sovereignty. So it's just amazing how this book is written. Um, so far, we've learned uh, in the book of Esther from really chapters 1 and 2 that God's providential power is comprehensive. Remember that truth? Uh, we start in chapter 1 with sort of this historical report of the most powerful uh, empire uh, at that time. It really was a worldwide dominance and who the king was and who the queen was and then we kind of got into the story and so it was comprehensive from uh, one poll, a national poll, historic polls, all the way down to the fact that somehow Esther wins the heart of King Ahasuerus uh, in a beauty pageant uh, against all these other wonderful, I'm sure, good-looking young ladies who had marvelous personality as well. 
so, so we have this, this comprehensive reality of, of what God's power is doing. And then, then in, in chapter, the last part of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, uh, we learned that God's providence is personal and precise. So, you know, uh, if God's providential power is comprehensive, does it really fit the bill for me personally? And it, can it really be precise? Well, we found out that, yes, in fact, it is very personal and precise. And then in chapter 4 and 5, we learned that God's providence compels obedience. And we dealt with the, 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 uh, uh, the action of Esther as she resigns herself. Remember, we, we talked about that. We, we, we contrasted resignation with fatalism. Esther is not being fatalistic when she says, if I die, I die. Okay? Uh, no, we're saying that at that point in this low spiritual time in the nation of Israel, Esther resigns herself, which is a completely altogether different thing. When we resign ourselves, we, we, are, we, we forbear, we acquiesce, we, we understand the truth that God is a personal God and He is sovereign and there are times in our life where we just resign ourselves to that truth. And that's a good thing. Uh, we're not fatalistic. Remember, fatalistic really... Uh, blossoms out of a worldview that there is no God. That there is no personal, warm, loving creator running the universe. It just all kind of happens by chance. And that leads to fatalism, depression, and defeat, and, and difficulty, and can't think of another D. Dire. Yeah. So, but resignation finds its place in the life of God's people. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to acquiesce. So tonight, we deal then with uh, two other nagging questions. At least they're questions for me, and perhaps if you're thinking along with me in the book of Esther, they're nagging questions for you in relationships to God, God's providence. The first, is God's providential power a real capable power? Can it do what it sets out to do? And the second thing is what value does it have then if God could just do a miracle anyway? Remember, we're contrasting providential power with miraculous power. God has both. We're saying that providential power works within the confines of all the things that God has created in normal time and space. And providence works through all of that, as a, contrasted with miracle that invades time and space, transgresses its laws, and does something amazing, like stop the sun in the book of Judges. And that's a miracle, okay? That's something that's contrary to the laws that God has set up. So, so then the questions is, 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 I mean, when you look at miracle, that's a capable power. And, and miracle has an amazing value, right? I mean, it's, it's amazing, <laughs> if nothing else. And does providence really hold up to that sort of a snuff? Is it, is it really, you know, all that wonderful? 
Um, so it is easy to understand that miracle is a capable power of God, but miracle as a sole source of God's power would leave God distant and only, listen to this, occasionally involved in your life. Let me put it this way to illustrate. It is like the difference between a benefactor in the life of a child as compared to the child's parent, his natural born parents. I want you to think tonight of the benefactor as miracle, and I want you to think of providence as the parent. They both care for the child, and both are appreciated. However, their care is far different. A benefactor's care is a single, at least, a single contribution in a moment of time. It can be more than one, but it's, it's a punctuated help comes in moments of time, and often spread far apart. And as such, it's very helpful and appreciated. However, God did not design children to be raised by benefactors. He designed them to be reared by loving, interested, and involved parents who are always present to care year to year, month to month, day to day, and yes, even moment to moment. This, my friends is God's providential power in your life. The author of Esther wants to open our eyes to see this vast expression of the omnipotence of God. Folks, this is where omnipotence, not in miracle, but in providence, takes on a whole new degree of omni. <laughs> we can put it that way. It's, a, it's truly stunning and breathtaking when we really understand that God is moment by moment powerfully working in every nook and cranny of your life to fulfill his promise to you, to his son. This is amazing. The challenge is that like parents, God's providence's influence is often what? Imperceptible and not seen or even appreciated in the child's life till much later. Tonight we want to observe, and here's our proposition, that God's providence is imperceptibly overpowering. God's providence is imperceptibly overpowering and therefore certainly capable and immensely invaluable to the believer. And we want to start thinking this way. We want to think more about providence than we ever do about miracle. Because this is the moment-to-moment -moment reality in your life, what's going on, okay? So, so first of all, in, in chapter 6 now, we have Esther opened. We, we see this truth surfacing, that God's providential power imperceptibly overpowers in the exaltation of Mordecai. And, 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 and I, it was difficult to try to choose an appropriate word. But the idea of imperceptibly. And you're going to hear me say the preposition in a lot tonight. And that's done on purpose. It's not by. That's not how providence works. We, God doesn't do 
things by providential power. Providential power works in and through. It's a different concept. It's a different preposition. And, and, and it's something that ought to, again, uh, warm our hearts and encourage us. So let's read chapter 6. Um, I'm going to read fast and you listen fast. And then we'll make some comments and then we'll go on. During that night, the king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they sought to lay hands on the king, King Ahasuerus, to kill him. Verse 3, and the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on this Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, well, nothing has been done for him. And that wouldn't do. Verse 4, so in the middle of the night, the king said, well, we're going to do something, essentially. So in verse 4, so the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman, put your thumbs down in your lap. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. Uh, we would have learned that in chapter 5. This is one of the results of Haman's intensification for the hatred of Mordecai. He had these amazing gallows built with the purpose of hanging Mordecai on them. And in fact, he was coming to tell uh, Ahasuerus that very morning, early in the morning, what he wanted to do. Um, so Haman is outside the court, and uh, he wants to tell, to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows, which he had prepared for him. And the king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. Uh, so Haman came in, and the king said to him, before Haman could get out a word, What is to be done for the man who, uh, whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Well, isn't this just wonderful? I'm a... I'm going to, you know, there's something big here for me. So I'm going to really womp it up. So whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Then Haman said to the king, <clears throat> For a man whom the king desires to honor, let, him, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, and whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them array the man whom the king desires to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Take, uh, take quickly the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, thus it shall be done to the man to whom the king desires to honor. And Mordecai returns to the king's gate. Uh, but Haman hurries home, mourning with his head covered. This is a public thing. And Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men, these friends, and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but, sure, but will surely fall before him. Where was that counsel a chapter ago? When they said, hang him on a gallows. <laughs> Oh, by the way, they knew he was a Jew then. It's amazing what happens when the king honors you. Everybody gets a little nervous. 
While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily, hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. And that's, again, one of the truths that comes out of Esther chapter 5 is Esther, as she was received before the king, she simply asked for a banquet that she could invite the king and Haman to. And, uh, and that's all we know at that point. That was Hester's simple request. Um, so we're looking at in chapter 6 this idea that the providence of God imperceptibly overpowers in the exaltation of Mordecai. We, first of all, we've observed it already in verses one, uh, verse 1 there, the sleepless night. Literally, it's, and sleep fled away from. <laughs> this is God's providential power working in an amazing way. Verses 4 through 5, we, we, we see it working in Haman's impeccable timing, right? The, 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 the note of the, the, the chapter 6 is, uh, the idea here is that the king has a sleepless night. It's probably very early in the morning, and guess who shows up? Guess who just so happens to be there? Because he's so excited about telling the king of hanging uh, Mordecai that he wanted to get there early and be the first one to have uh, an audience with the king. So he shows up, and there he is. There he is. He just so happens. And then to our horror, to our horror, uh, the king asks no one less than Haman. And, 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 uh, but what pertinent piece of information is held back in God's good providence is who the object of this blessing would be. Uh, and so God uh, does an amazing, ironic thing here as he, he, he does a complete reversal. So it's in Haman's impeccable timing in the fact that Haman couldn't get a word out edgewise. He, could, he had no chance to report to the king what he desired to do. The king immediately took over the conversation. Um, uh, we know that God's providence works here then in, in Haman's, in, in the very pride of Haman. Verse 7, then Haman said, uh, I'm sorry, in verse number 6, Haman says to himself, right? I mean, not everybody would think, okay, well, the king's going to honor me. So I'm going to really come up with something good here. But God in his providence is, is sealing Haman. And he's working through even the pride and arrogance of Haman. Providential power overwhelms through that. It overwhelms uh, through his grief in verse number 12. Uh, uh, Haman hurries home. He, he's mourning publicly with his head covered. Everybody would have known that Haman was not in a good way, that this was a very embarrassing thing for Haman to endure. And, and, uh, and, and the irony seems again to be uh, uh, the purview of everyone except whom? The king. <laughs> he seems to be the only one who's in the dark. God's providentially protecting. And, 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 and so even in, the, in the, the arrogance and the pride, the grief, and uh, truly, uh, Haman begins to become a commentary on the book of Proverbs here in chapter 6. Pride goes before what? A dis destruction, haughty spirit before a fall. We see God's providence overpowering uh, uh, in the exaltation of, of Mordecai, even in those who are closest to Haman. 
So Haman goes home and he recounts this to his own wife and to his wise men. And, and, and ironically, they, they foreshadow and foretell of Haman's destruction. Um, you know, none of us men are, hope we have a wife quite like that, but uh, here she is. And, and she, she, she's astute. And, and, and she, she tells Haman, it's not that you might not stand. Um, and the wise Zeresh, uh, and Zeresh in verse 13, his wife said to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish origin, you what? You will not overcome him. This isn't a possibility. Well, well Zeresh dresses, reflecting on the fact of there's something particular about these Jews. Historically, there have been all kinds of people that have been taken over by captive, cap, 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 captures, captors, uh, and, and their whole nations have gone into oblivion. But these Jews continue to always be around. They never seem to go away. And then she's reflecting upon that truth. Um, so now that Mordecai has what in his back pocket? He now has the honor of the king in his back pocket. They confess uh, what we have observed all along in the book of Esther, that God's providential power is absolutely overpowering. And Zeresh is seeing it in the wise men. Um, and while again, verse number 14, uh, 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 while, while they were talking with him, uh, unlike previous, the previous talk where they sort of had time to work out a scheme to really get after Mordecai, here there's no time to scheme anymore. It's as though God's providence has had enough. And Haman is hurriedly taken off to the banquet with Esther and Ahasuerus. So, so Mordecai is secured into the favor of the king moved along by the powerful current of God's providence. So we see sort of imperceptibly, and yet perceptibly, for those of us who read, God's providential power is overwhelming. And we see it in chapter 7, secondly, that it imperceptibly overpowers in the swift and violent judgment of Haman himself. And we see in chapter 7, now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day also as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given to me as my petition and my people as my request, for we have been sold. Remember, Haman offered a price to the king for the Jews. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who would presume to do this? And Esther said, a foe. And an enemy, it is this wicked Haman. And Haman became terrified before the king and queen. And the king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had determined against him by the king. Now, 
when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling in the, on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen within, uh, 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 with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, Hasuerus, be a good time to take a long, lingering look at something. Behold, you could just sort of see Harbona standing off to the side there. <laughs> Add this little contribution. <laughs> Behold, I don't think anybody liked Haman much. Um, behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who speak good, who, by the way, spoke good on behalf of you, O king. The king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. So imperceptibly overpowering, God's providence is overpowering in the swift and violent judgment of Haman. We see it in, in, in Queen Esther's rhetoric, just so powerful. She personalizes. She says, this is about my life and my people. And king, this is my petition. So she's, 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 she's taking advantage of what she already knew to be true in the heart of the king for her. And God's providentially is going to take that all up together and mold it together to fulfill his promise to the Jewish nation and rescue them. Uh, it intensifies, she intensifies it. Uh, somebody has called for the destruction to kill, and then she uses the word annihilate, all things that certainly uh, may not have necessarily been in Haman's mind, but certainly would have been the net result. But she certainly builds these up. She patronizes. If we were just being merely sold, I wouldn't have kept quiet, O king, because it would not have been commensurate to have bothered you. But this is big. This is really big. And by the time she gets there, King Ahasuerus is literally sitting on the edge of the seat, and he says, Who, for Pete's sake, is it, Esther? You know, I mean, he, she, she, she used uh, uh, great skill and rhetoric. Who is he and where is he and who would presume to do this? So he was exercised. Uh, and really in God's timing, God's providence. Uh, this is a second banquet. This is, this is time had, had greatly elapsed. And it's as if God finally brought all the pieces together. Now he is finally working up the king. To really do something. This king who seems to only be interested in material issues. Who, who has a peculiar view of women at best. And who seems to be oblivious about everything. God finally has him where he wants him. And, uh, and, and so Esther said. And, and, and gives the big reveal. It's not a small reveal. You know. This just isn't said. Well it's Haman here. No, that's not what she said. She wants it up. This is a foe, an enemy, evil. And you can just say, I mean, this is like, this is where we learn how to do Grace Bible Day Camp up here. I mean, really, Esther would have been a great program director. And then she points over to Haman. 
You know, and you can just see Haman's countenance just plummet. The king's wrath explode. For he has been deceived. And remember, Haman really never meant to deceive him. But God's providence works it out. And that's exactly the way it came across. As absolute deception. And there's nothing that makes a king matter than to be deceived by his royal vizier. <laughs> that really gets your goat. More than anything. You know, if you can't trust the guy right next to you, who can you trust, right? So we have to do something. So he gets up and out he goes. So powerfully working in chapter uh, 7 through, through Esther's rhetoric. Providence works in, the, in, in, in Haman's own terror. At this point, Haman may still have a chance. Possibly the king arises. Haman, in his mind, understands that the power really rests with Esther. So he's going to stay with Esther and, and he's going to beg her for his life. And he begs and he pleads. And he does what every good ancient Near Eastern man does. He grabs the feet of the potentate and he begs and he weeps and he kisses the feet. But again, our Persian king isn't all that swift. Or he is so upset, he doesn't even, under, doesn't even walk in what the normal customs are. So, so in this terror, uh, Haman is, is perhaps maybe doing this with a little bit more energy than what would normally be expected, and his action is misconstrued uh, as, as the king comes in in verse 8. Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? And there's absolutely given no possibility for explanation. So just in case there was a window of hope here, God's providence imperceptibly overwhelms and seals that possibility. It will never be an option for Haman to ever explain anything. And immediately, they put a, something over his head. And out he goes. They cover Haman's face. As the word went out from the king's mouth. I mean, you've got to note that. that. That's amazing. All these adverbs and these little, these little editorial points. Haman didn't even have a chance to explain I mean, he, since the morning, he's been, uh, 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 and he can't get a word of edgewise. Providence has shut his mouth imperceptibly and oh so powerfully. And oh so powerfully. And then, as we mentioned, Harbona, who seems to be, you know, there's always these sort of people in the stories. He's sitting off to the side and he says, <clears throat> You know, it kind of gets uh, the, the attention. And, and again, what is this going to add? This is going to add insult to injury. If the king is already thinking he has, been, he has been led to deception, to the destruction of the Jews, and this has been Haman's intent all along to deceive him, when that really hasn't ever been Haman's intent. He was going to share everything with the king. He just hasn't had a chance. But now this is firing his mind. And Harbona brings up this idea of the gallows, which 
Haman built, by the way, for Mordecai, the Jew, and we might have a chance here. You know, you were deceived, you know, and you, you really blew it, king. I mean, this is kind of what's in the between the lines. You, you're really not that great. I mean, this is your vizier. This is your number two guy. And, you know, but hey, we might have a chance here. Uh, perhaps uh, we can sort of lessen the deception, O king, uh, by taking Haman and hanging him on his own gallows. Oh, wouldn't that be a neat turn? And then it might look that you kind of knew all along and you were just waiting for Haman to get those gallows built. And of course the king, you know, that's a good idea, you know, essentially. And um, so again, Haman becomes a commentary on the truthfulness of the principles in the book of Proverbs. The righteous of the upright will deliver them, but the treacherous will be caught up by their own greed. When the wicked increase, transgression increases, but the righteous will see their fall. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. So God's providence is imperceptibly overpowering in the swift destruction of Haman, just as it was in the exaltation of Mordecai. And finally tonight, God's providence is imperceptibly overpowering in reversing the past. It's imperceptibly overpowering in reversing the past. And this is chapter 8. On the day King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. Think of that. There is a reversal of the past. The once vizier, the second in command, now all that he owns is the property of this young Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king of Esther and disclosed what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king, just in case. You know, we, you know we're all excited, woohoo! But, you know, it's, the real problem is still with us. The cancer is still in place that will annihilate the Jews. So lest we get too excited, there's still much work to be done. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. And the king extended the golden scepter to Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king. Then she said, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor before him, these, these get tiring, all these. <laughs> I'm glad I don't have to talk to you guys like this. If it pleases the king, and if I found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, all of which gets a resounding yes from the king, particularly that last one, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the calamity which shall befall my people, and how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred. So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther. I am already highly committed to this idea, is essentially what he's saying, to the protection and to the reversal of this mess. And I have hung him by his own gallows because he has stretched out his hand against the Jews. Now let's try this. Now write to the Jews as you see fit. 
in the king's name and seal it with the signet's ring for a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. So he just turns over the problem then to Mordecai and Esther. So the king's scribes were called uh, and essentially verses 9 and following is that on the very day that they were supposed to be destroyed, they now have the, the, uh, the legal permission to assemble and to defend themselves and to do so rigorously, and we would think, well, wouldn't there be some, at least some collateral damage, right? Why, why, why does it seem like the Jews take absolutely no, uh, no, no um, damage uh, on this day? Well, the, the, it's really quite simple. You see in verse 17, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on the whole nation. Now, who's the dread of the Jews? Who now is wearing blue robes? Who has the king's signet ring? Who has a crown on his head? Who now is second in charge? And who, oh, by the way, remember, has very publicly made it known that he is a Jew? Remember back in uh, earlier part of Esther? Who? Yeah. So, you know, you might touch a Jew on that day, but oh, beware, the dread of the Jews is in the palace. And I guarantee you, he's going to know who you are. So guess what all the nations did? Uh, well, they were all filled with joy. <laughs> I mean, what else are you going to be, right? When, when the heavy hitter is standing next to the king, um, and... Uh, so verse 13, a copy of the edict to be issued uh, as law in each and every province was published in all the people, to all the peoples so that the Jews should be ready for this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers hastened and impelled the king's command. They went out riding. Uh, the decree was given in Susa the capital. Uh, then Mordecai, oh, here it is, went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white and a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and, and purple. And the city of Susa does what? It shouts for joy. It rejoices. Of course you would do that. For the Jews, uh, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. And in each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. So God's providential power imperceptibly reverses the past. Remember just a few months ago in our story, Mordecai was certainly a minority. He wasn't allowed into the king's gate. He was in sackcloth and ashes. Now he possesses the signet ring of the king. He's dressed in royal blue robes. He has a large crown of gold on his head. He's in a garment of fine linen and purple. Remember Esther? Before she was cowering with the idea of going before the king. Uh, she was a unskilled spokesperson. And now she just is there. And she falls at the king. And she, she, she doesn't seem to have the same fear. And she speaks to the king again without the same foreboding of possible death, although potentially it was still a threat, but doesn't seem to enter into the narrative at this point. 
We now have a new courage in the heart, uh, potentially. Remember the Jews being defeated and defenseless? Now uh, they are light and they have gladness and they have joy and honor. Remember Susa in the land was mourning? Now Susa in the land is rejoicing. God's providence, imperceptibly as it were, powerfully reverses the past. So what of us tonight? The power of God's providence more than gets the job done. I hope you saw that tonight. God through providence does so, if I can say it this way, with stunning style points. Can I say it that way? And still be respectful and honoring and trying to put into words how we should view this day-to-day, moment-by-moment care of God's for His people. It's truly amazing. These stunning style points, overpowering in almost imperceptible fashion, numerous obstacles that He faces, God faces. God is our loving Heavenly Father, never leaves us alone. His providential power is with us in every moment, guiding in and through our lives and all the events surrounding them. This grand truth of the capability and value of God's providence is immense. And just by three simple ways of application, let us tonight, let us leave for God's providence the task of exaltation and honor. Can you just leave that to the Lord tonight? You know, perhaps you've felt like you've been left behind at work and, and, and you've sort of been overlooked in the line of promotions and, and perhaps you've, you've even been on the negative side, been sort of the, 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 the uh, you've received sort of vengeance and, and there's that part of your heart that wants to strike out and, and, and render evil unto those who have evilly treated you. But you know, we, we don't have that purview. We don't have that, that liberty. We are to love our enemies. We are to do good to those who despitefully use us. And, and, and what God is simply saying is that command has underneath it the rich, moment by moment, providential care of God. My friend, when you strike out, when you strike back, when you demand, you obviously are somebody who doesn't quite yet grasp the providential power of God in your life. So can we leave the honor and the glory to God? He's much better at it than you are. Secondly, can we leave for God's providence those who set themselves against God and His people? We've kind of already mentioned that. Uh, So the honor for those who we might feel are beyond antagonistic toward the things of God. Can we just continue to, uh, and instead of getting caught up in all that, just focus faithfully on the disciplines of godly living and work harder at that. And find our hearts distill in, in the joy of worship and satisfaction in God rather than having to go out and fight those people 
and give them what they So leave God's providence the task of exaltation and honor. You pursue faithfulness. Leave for God's providence those who set themselves against God and His purposes and people. You simply love and pursue the disciplines of godliness. And then can I say this? Leave for God's providence your messy past. Isn't that a great joy? You know, we, we live in a day and age where therapeutically we're told to rehearse the past. Therapeutically we're told that the past shapes our identity today. Yeah, but the Word of God has a completely different message. The Word of God says that in Christ you are a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now your past is messy. So is mine. And there are all kinds of habits and issues that are, that are being carried into your life today. But, and, and God is about the business of providentially working on those things. But God can reverse the past. And he will do so in your life. And he is, he is providentially making you into future rulers of the world. Isn't that a hoot? I mean, have you ever heard a greater hoot in all your life? I know, it's, it's, it's shocking. That's a hoot. But it's happening. It's happening. And in that's, God wants us to take, you know, all that effort and energy, you know, that we're told to think about our past and why we are. And he, he says, just, just leave that and take all that and hook it to your living hope. Uh, Paul and I was just discussing that this morning in our Sunday school. Take it all to the future. And let it sort of drag you through the mud of the present and dealing with your past. Okay? Don't, don't, don't spend a whole lot of time. God's going to use that past. Remember 2 Corinthians 1? You know, and there's some of you who've been through, to, to call it tragic is trite. I mean, some of you have been sexually abused. Some of you have grown up in homes that to call them dysfunctional is a compliment. And you have some real difficult, difficult things in your past. I'm not even going to try to quantify it. Okay? But I do know that all of those things are exactly the things that the person sitting next to you has gone through as well. See, that's, that's the beauty of the church. In every, in every generation, we are, we, are, we are a messed up group of people. And we sit next to each other. And we're, we're going through things together. And, and we're getting comforted. And we comfort others with the comfort we've been comforted with, right? And that comfort never comes from focusing on the past, but by God's grace moving through it uh, and, and leaving that to his providence. And whatever part of that he wants to use uh, for the sake and comfort of another, he'll use it when it's appropriate. Okay? So may the Spirit of God instruct and help us to live in the light of the truth of God's overpowering and at times imperceptible providential power. Can we do that? Can we get excited about every moment? And instead of stepping back on a bad day and wishing for a miracle, step back and begin to consider the moment-by-moment -moment providential care of God as he's working in your life. And give him glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for... Uh, your providence. And Lord, we confess we haven't made enough of it. Uh, we, we have had eyes that have been trained to 
Uh, I'm not going to say it's a bad substitute, Lord, because miracle isn't. It's an amazing thing. And we worship you for miracles. But, but Lord, uh, we have missed providence. And, and, and we, we spend long amounts of time in our life wondering where you are when, in fact, you're all around us. God, we confess our sin. And, and we pray that you would train us to confess, even though we may not see it, but to confess what we observe in Esther. Because Esther is just an example of what you're doing in every single one of our lives as you seek to keep your promises concerning us. You have promised to make us future rulers of the world. Lord, we confess that's quite a hoot. But we also confess, because you have said it, you will do it. And uh, help us to... Uh, to, 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 to be found in line with that, dealing with our day-to-day -day activity. We thank you for it, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's take our hymn books and turn to hymn number 448. 448. This is my favorite. This is a, All the hymns we've been singing have been encouraging, but this is probably my favorite one on Providence. Let's all stand. It's a good one to sing in the shower in the morning or whistle. Day by day, and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I've no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure, gives unto each day what he deems best. Loving me is part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. Every day the Lord himself is near me with a special mercy for each hour. All my cares he fain would bear and cheer me. He whose name is counselor and power, the protection of his child and treasure, is a charge that on himself he laid. As thy days, thy strength shall be in measure. This the pledge to me. Help me then in every tribulation, so to trust thy promises, Lord, that I lose not face sweet consolation offered me within thy holy word. Help me, Lord, when toil and trouble meeting, ere to from a father's hand one by one the days the moments fleeting till I reach the promised land and the people of God said Amen, Amen. and you are dismissed thank you so much